Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. I have definitive proof it's a beautiful Arizona morning, even though the sun's not up. There was no 8.5 earthquake this week, followed by a 6.1, 6.4. We'll talk about that a little later. What would you do if you woke up and your house was sitting on your cars? be a tough way to get to work. And if you're waking up this year in 1984, your Arizona Highways magazine features the rise of Phoenix, in which they quote notable uh, rising celebrities and their thoughts on Phoenix. Alice Cooper says, you know what's wrong with this place? 75 golf courses. That's what's wrong. Too many days just made for playing 36 holes. So when I have to write a gruesome song like Monster Dog, I have to leave home. I gotta leave Scottsdale and go someplace bleak like Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Campbell said Phoenix is the best, most comfortable. Well, wait a minute. I don't want to praise it too much. It could get messed up by being overcrowded. Maybe I'll just say I like the desert. <laughs> and one Stevie Nicks said I was born in the desert, and I'm still a desert baby. Desert is very healing to me, and my Phoenix home is where I go to write songs and let the creative juices flow. Unfortunately, she doesn't live here anymore, and she regrets that. She writes her songs. I guess she has a house in L.A. now. But uh, the last time Fleetwood Mac was here, which was last year, she emphasized it's always nice to come back home. Phoenix is our featured staycation destination all month long. We did it as a favor to our mountain uh, inhabitants. They said, you know, as much as y'all come up here to ski in the winter, we're coming down to the desert in the summer to get a break from the cold on the weekends. Why don't y'all put a desert uh, staycation in the winter? So we did, and we've got Grand Canyon University as our staycation destination. And around the state today, we also have the Casa Grande Home Show. Our promotion team is at. You can find Lance and Jen and the Rosie on the House Sanderson Ford Transit at the Casa Grand Home Show. We'll hear from them as it starts here at about 10 o'clock. I'll tell you, we've got some interesting things going on around the state just in general. For those of you that love finding activities with your kids to get outside and enjoy the great Arizona outdoors, Game and Fish has a couple things going right now in particular. You can log on to their website, AZGFD, and take a look at the webcams that they've got set up across the state. They've got one on a bald eagle nest up in uh, above Lake Pleasant and above Cottonwood. Then they've got the Sandhill Crane camera down around Wilcox. As a matter of fact, on February 8th, you can actually go with the game and fish photographer, George Andraco, and he will teach you how to photograph and be right in the middle of the Sandhill Cranes. So that is a Sandhill Crane photography tour on February 8th. That would be a great event to round up your nieces, your nephews, your children, your grandchildren, and get down there and enjoy Southeast Arizona with no less than George Andraco to teach you a little bit about photography. So that's just a few of the things going on around the great state of Arizona. 
Romy, I think you've been there as a kid. Have you ever walked into the Hall of Flame Museum on Van Buren? Hall of Flame? Mm -hmm. I don't believe. Well, we've invited two very special guests from the Hall of Flame. Chuck Montgomery, who's the executive director of the museum, and Mark Moorhead, who's curator of education. And I was very blessed to get a very quick tour of the facility yesterday, and our topic later in the day is home safety and things not to get involved in to keep yourself safe. I'll give you a hint. Saran wrap is one, and flip-flops on a ladder is another, but we'll get to that a little bit later. <laughs> but we thought with safety being kind of the issue of the day, it'd be a great opportunity uh, to bring guests from the Hall of Flame Museum and talk a little bit about what y'all are showing off down there. Chuck, good morning. Good morning, Rosie. Thank you for having us on today. We really appreciate it. Man, we appreciate y'all taking the time to come down. Um, 70,000 square feet under roof of historical firefighting equipment that actually goes as far back as the early 1700s. Absolutely amazing. It's amazing to me every morning when I walk into the place to think that our very earliest fire truck was around and operating and putting out fires uh, 51 years before we were a country. Wow. And uh, that's, that really puts us in a, in a league of itself. Well, as, as an admirer of engineering equipment, I mean, y'all have some beautiful actual pieces of art that you call fire trucks. Yes, sir, we do. I mean, there are there are a couple down there that are just absolutely gorgeous. What's how, how do you start a fire museum? Well, this one started quite uniquely. I, uh, Mr. Getz, uh, George Getz, actually, was given a, a fire truck in 1955 uh, by his wife Olive. She uh, she gave him a truck as a surprise, as a Christmas present. Oh, uh, that's a that's a surprise Christmas present. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you have to put a red bow on that, or? <laughs> <laughs> or you just get it delivered to the front drive. Certainly. It better be red for sure. So, Man. So their, uh, their son, Bert, uh, uh, picked that truck up and got it home and uh, rolled it up in the driveway for Christmas. They were very excited. And um, right away, Mr. Getz got on the truck, started driving around the neighborhood, and, and he was uh, absolutely hooked. And uh, from not, that point not on. Not in the firefighting fraternity <laughs> at all. This, was, this just nope. started as a fluke gift that's right that's a fluke gift they were driving uh, on into chicago and saw it in a in a lot and uh, he said it'd be fun to own one of those and uh, i think olive made note of that and told uh, bert that uh, we need to go down and get that so they arranged to go pick the truck up they stored it for a few weeks before christmas and uh, give it gave it to him as is and uh, he started then of course over time and this is the 50s it's 1955 yes okay uh, so uh, by the 1960s, he already had enough trucks to start his first museum in Lake, Gene <laughs> Lake Geneva. So he, he wasted no time, got right to uh, buying fire trucks and collecting them. Well, y'all's collection is unbelievable. Even like, like this one piece that we were talking about dates back to 1725. Uh, it's a manual crank, of course. Uh -huh. uh, what, what's the story on that unit it itself? Was well, it's uh, as uh, obviously it's a pretty unique unit as you saw, and and uh, fairly hardy, and uh, it, you know it took about uh, twenty folks to operate it, and it uh, kind of incorporated the hand pumping motion of uh, moving the uh, arms back and forth to pump water, but then up on top of it, uh, two people 
kind of rode it like a stair mill and like a stairmaster. And uh, between the the twenty folks on there, they were able to pump about sixty gallons a minute of water. <laughs> <laughs> so buckets are coming in, water shooting out the uh, the nozzle, and and Mark's got some specifics on the uh, the name of the unit and uh, where it resided. And yeah. Mark in the seventeen hundreds. How do you source 60 gallons a minute? Well, and it, that could be very, very tricky. I mean, first of all, they didn't have – even if you had a fairly adjacent water source, they didn't have good fire hose yet, uh, at least not in England. And so you continued with a bucket brigade just like you see in the Western movies, you know, where their church is on fire and they're all passing water, yeah. water in buckets and the last guy in line gets as close to the fire as he can, which usually isn't very close and feebly tries to throw his bucket of water on it. With this, the bucket brigade continued, but you poured it in this little hopper at the back of the unit, and you got guys pumping up and down, and you could shoot, uh, if you really got it going, you get about 60 gallons of water a minute onto the fire, which seems really like not much, but compared to trying to throw buckets of water on a fire, you lose half the bucket on the way to the, on the, way to the fire. It was a huge leap forward. And it really changed the world. Uh, it, that one that you're talking about was built in 1725 in London and by a guy named Newsham who had a very successful business. They had been invented in Holland actually a little before that in the 1600s. But other countries started knocking off this very successful design. And the British one was very successful. You would have found them, as Chuck said, you know, half a century before the U.S. was a country, seven years before George Washington was born. You would have found them in American cities. But they were also all over Europe. Peter the Great bought a bunch of them for, uh, for the Russian Empire. And they uh, – essentially they were a lot a big factor in what allowed big cities big metropolitan areas to grow uh, because you could not that there weren't still big terrible citywide fires there absolutely were of course like the great chicago fire from most famously but it gave you a real chance to head that off and so you weren't in, instead of rebuilding your city a couple of times a decade you were building your city out well, by the time we've invented saws big enough to cut lumber, I mean, a, the great majority of the communities prior to that were masonry structures. It, it's what they knew how to work with. And then we figure out how to run big timbers. And now we're going to build out of wood. Yeah. And uh, we're going to build the streets too narrow. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to set a fire somehow on the top of the four-story building. And then we're going to ask guys like you to figure out a way to put it out. Yes. Well, exactly. and the terrible thing about the the wooden structures and them being so close together is you would get these big terrible fires. The they were they were horrible, but the backhanded blessing of them is that when they rebuilt, they figured out how to rebuild cities much more fire resistant and much more safe. Chicago, that was particularly true of. Uh, they started building out of much more out of brick and stone and things like that after that. And you and the cities became much more durable and other cities followed the, the, that example. Well, we've just talked about one piece <laughs> that you have in a museum that covers 70,000 square feet. It's an absolutely fabulous museum. Even, even like I don't have... The, the closest I have to a family member as a firefighter is my grandfather was in the movie A Long Hot Summer. Uh -huh. And all nice. you see of him is dipping a bucket in a horse trough and his behind mm -hmm. running away from the camera in a bucket brigade no. to put <laughs> out a fire <laughs> in the barn. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But that's the closest I've got to a relative in the fire 
fighting department right now. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. True or false for a pair of passes to Arizona State Parks? Text true or false, whether you think it's true or false, to 411923. And we'll pick a random right winner at the end of this programming segment. Good to any of the 35 Arizona State Parks. And if you were in Phoenix today, the closest one would be Lost Dutchman. That'd be a nice one to see this morning. I bet that sunrise coming over the superstitions is going to be pretty. Rose Mofford, name known all over the country, is one of the first female governors. But she was not elected. If you think that's true, text true to 411923 or false. Text false, and we'll pick a random right winner at the end of this programming segment. Very good. Very good. We're here with two special guests, Chuck Montgomery and Mark Moorhead, from the Hall of Flame Museum, located at... 6101 East Van Buren. Just across the street, kind of sandwiched in between the ASU Baseball Park and and the Phoenix Zoo. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right there, just south of the zoo. Sometimes uh, people get on the wrong side of Van Buren looking for it, but uh, we're just south of Van Buren. And and if you're in the neighborhood, just looking south, you've got a nice big banner on the side of the building. Oh, we do. And it's a respectable sized building, seventy thousand square feet. And we've had y'all here, uh, and Mark and I have only talked about one piece of equipment so far. But before we go back to the equipment in the museum. You were talking on the break about a special event tomorrow. Yes. What have y'all got going tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow is the recognition at the Arizona Fallen Firefighter Memorial uh, down at Wesley Bowling Plaza. That'll be at 10 o'clock in the morning, and fire departments from all over the state will be represented and um, honoring the uh, firefighters lost in Arizona over the decades. And uh, it's a it's a quite a respectful event, lots of bagpipes and, and ceremony and... Uh, anyone's welcome to come out and see it, it is open to the public it is and it's just adjacent to uh just adjacent to the uh, arizona memorial the uss arizona okay. so you'll see it just to the north there and it's a beautiful new uh structure that was been built and has the names inscribed that whole wesley Boland plaza over the last decade has just been uh, completely uh, i mean they knocked it out of the park yes they have yeah. it's beautiful and uh, yes just walking through it and all the different monuments and memorials to firefighters the code talkers the mm-hmm. uh, pearl harbor I mean, all the all the servicemen and women over the years i mean it's just you, you got to take a day to just stroll and read the signs and stories about the arizona heroes that you know have a put everything out on the line for us yes and there's always ample uh, you know obviously on a sunday you have no uh, activity in the capital or anything so you have lots of parking available and go parking deucey's spot that's the one day you might be able to get away with it yes i don't know he may be planning on being there yes well we were talking about the things we could find in the museum uh one of the things that surprised me the most uh romy would you would you think as a firefighter in the 18 and 19, early 1800s, that a bed wrench would be one of your most important tools? Bed wrench. Mark, why don't you explain yeah. that? Sometimes also <laughs> called a bed key. A bed but key, it okay. was just, yeah, it, it was, the uh, thing we forget is that this, a lot of this firefighting in the early days, the later 1700s and, and into the 1800s, was before the era where you had insurance or safe deposit boxes or things like that. So for most people, everything you owned, which might not even be that much anyway, was in your house. And for the vast majority of people who weren't 
pretty wealthy, the most valuable thing in your house would be your bed. And so they would try to get – they would try to do salvage while the house is on fire. They'd get candlesticks and house money and stuff like that out of the bed because you could be well-to-do, prosperous, even wealthy. And in a few hours' time, you could be literally homeless if you had a bad fire. And so you would at least try to get some of your stuff out. Uh, want to really, really emphasize nobody should do this now. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, but for most people, the most valuable thing in their house was their bed. And so firefighters would often carry a tool called a bed wrench or a bed key because the bed head often was actually bolted to the wall. And this would help you get it off of there and get the best. At least you'd have your bed you, if your house burned down. The, uh, the This eventually changed as insurance became you know much more common. But you know, again, nowadays the philosophy is the only thing, the absolutely only thing you get out of the house is yourself. Uh, everything else can stay. Uh, but yes, that so we do. We have some of these early tools, and one of the really key ones, no pun intended, was the bed key or the bed wrench that was for taking big pieces of furniture that might be bolted to the wall off the wall. And yeah, they'd be. It was like moving day. They'd be carrying furniture and candlesticks and family heirlooms and anything that might have a little bit of value, either sentimental or financial, they'd be carrying it out of the house and piling it out somewhere where it was hopefully safe. And uh, so it was, a, yeah, again, it was it was just a different time. When fire insurance became, in, in, you know, got invented, a lot of times, and we have a big collection of these at the museum, at the Hall of Flame, they would have these fire marks, which were cast iron, and you'd put one on your house or even more so on your business because it was, first of all, it was kind of your policy. The house burns down, you go through the wreckage, you dust it off, here's my policy, where's my money? But it was also prestigious because... Uh, fire insurance was really expensive because there was a real good chance they were going to have to pay a claim. And so if you had that on your house, it was like you were kind of doing pretty well and even more so on your business. It was a sign your business was real solvent. More with the Hall of Flame Museum. Right after this bottom of the hour news break, and the answer is true. Rose Mofford was the first female class president elected at Globe High School the first woman elected to the Secretary of State, and it was this position that got her into the governor's office with the impeachment of Meacham. The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson I Ford. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, burns, burns. You know, if you're ever driving around on I-17 and you're passing Metro Center and you see that silly-looking super salad and you ever ask yourself, what the heck were they thinking? And you concluded it probably had something to do with hippies and drugs in the 70s. Well, that's not quite the case. That was originally a bank and I-17 wasn't there and that tall, uh, whatever you call it, on top of it, pitch was designed so that people driving around could see it and know how to get there because the roads weren't developed at the time it was built in uh, 2025 that building will be 50 years old phoenix is our featured staycation destination and our winner will be staying at the uh the new renovated hotel at grand canyon university next week and we'll have them in and there's even a chance there's a little chatter we may even uh, hear a little bit from uh current basketball coach thunder dan as well oh fantastic well that's i shouldn't great. say anything because that always jinxes it but there's chatter that easy might be available oh awesome well we're here with chuck montgomery the executive director 
of the Hall of Flame Museum in Phoenix, and Mark Moorhead, the curator of education for the museum. It is of 300 fire equipment uh, museums in the country. You are by far and away the largest of all of them. Absolutely. I mean, head and shoulders larger than everybody else. Head and shoulders, yes. We're the truly the largest fire museum in America and the world, as we know. And uh, I would say the second largest is probably our shop where they uh, work, <laughs> work and repair on the, the trucks. It's it's sizable. It's it's to have a piece like this in the Phoenix metro area is absolutely uh, a privilege for the state. Well, I wanted to take this hour and just talk through the whole museum. And all we've talked about so far are the things you could see from the registration counter. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I got to tell you, we, you know, when you talk about that square footage and the, the shop involved and stuff, you can't imagine the wonderful set of volunteers that we have down there as we speak right now. They're down there literally dusting and cleaning and repairing and getting the museum ready for uh, even an event we're having this evening for the National uh, Fallen Firefighter Foundation. So these guys... At the museum? Yes. Uh -huh, these guys and gals that volunteer for us, uh, they have wonderful leadership and they're and just what they do for us, it makes all the difference because it allows us not only to have a great gallery to show folks like yourself when you came down, but also uh, to get this apparatus out to events such as the Fiesta Bowl. We had six trucks in the Fiesta Bowl. We've been in that parade since its origins, and uh, it really uh, it, it makes a big difference. So I really uh, shout out to those guys that are, and gals that are out there this morning volunteering for us. So, Well, I can see how someone in the firefighting fraternity could love to walk the museum and maybe even just by themselves. But for those of us that aren't in that fraternity, I'll tell you, walking it with an expert and giving you the color story behind every piece of equipment made all the difference. Oh, boy. Are, are those volunteers and docents available to the public? How would you arrange to get a guided tour through these marvelous pieces of equipment they are available and you you had a wonderful tour yesterday from both mark and joe hinkle who are are just wonderful wonderful docents and and uh you can call the museum at any time and arrange a guided tour it's always open and available for an unguided tour and we give you a manual that lets you walk through and now you can go to our website and kind of follow along your tour but uh, but you're right. It it adds if you have somebody to explain and go into detail on each of these pieces, it does change the entire event. So I would think you would have school buses lined up all the way down to the Capitol building, waiting to tour the kids through that facility. Oh, we will. We, we will. It's what we're changing our our focus, and we're really uh, schools, as you know, uh, are are challenged to go on field trips, and and our plan for the next. Uh, year is to start to emphasize how much the museum and the education that's provided there fits into the STEM curriculum. So obviously there's no part of firefighting that doesn't involve science, technology, engineering, and math. And we're going to capitalize on that. And we're already reaching out to the schools and talking to them. As you saw when you were there, we have a wonderful uh, interaction area for the kids, but we're going to be enhancing that as well. But, um, you know, schools have to justify what they do and, uh, and things have to fit within STEM and, and ours certainly does. So um, yet to come. Oh man. Well, everyone should see the museum. Mark, explain to the listeners, what role does a Dalmatian have at the fire station? Well, Dalmatians. How did, how did yeah. that 
connection get made. Yeah, one thing I'll tell you, Rosie, is that as I, when I talk to little kids now, it doesn't always have that association. They tend to think of them in terms of those of those Disney movies. Disney movies, oh. right? But when I was a kid, I you know certainly I always thought of Dalmatians as a firefighting dog, and that goes back to the days before they had fire trucks when they when horses pulled fire wagons in the 19th century. Dalmatians, like if you watch the Westminster Kennel Club dog show or something like that, they're still classed with the working breeds. It's just that what they were bred to do for the most part doesn't exist anymore. They were dogs that in Europe they were called Dalmatians because they're supposed to have come from the Dalmatia coast and what's now Croatia. But in America in the 19th century, they were often called coach dogs or carriage dogs. And that was because their job was to run with coach horses, urban horse teams, and they'd run alongside or right behind or sometimes right in front of the horses. They'd kind of encourage them. They were also like a, a early horn. They would bark when they went through an intersection or something like that. <laughs> and that, uh, but their biggest job, as weird as it seems, is they were guard dogs. Horse theft was a much bigger problem for people in the 1800s than car theft has been for us in modern times. People stole horses all the time. And those dogs, Dalmatians, if somebody walked up to that horse that he or she didn't know, they'd bite him on the leg or chase him away or whatever, hopefully, or at least make a lot of noise. But also they would sort of babysit horses. Horses are kind of jumpy, nervous animals. And if you've spent time with Dalmatians, you may notice that Dalmatians can be kind of jumpy, nervous dogs. You get them together and they just sort of chill each other out. (laughs) Yeah. Keep them calm, babysit. They're just the horse's best friend. And anybody who had horses might have a Dalmatian, but they became really associated with firefighters because of popular art. Prints and lithographs, it was very popular to have a steamer racing through. And you'd, the artist would put in a few Dalmatians. It's a little exaggerated how yeah. common they were. It's not like every fire station had one. The first mascot of the Phoenix Fire Department was a goat. Homer the goat. It was just a stray goat somebody found uh, downtown somewhere. and But I guess he kept busting into like the neighbor's vegetable garden. So they banished him out to a farm in, Gl- farm in uh, Glendale somewhere eventually. And became the mascot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there, there's a, you know, in, in the history of firefighting, there's a story behind virtually every single thing that you see yeah. there. Um, the fire hose. Yes. And why do... Why do the older generation of uh, fire stations all have a church steeple on them? Yes. Yeah. Well, if you see, like a lot of uh, kind of that classic American old school firehouse had that usually big square structure that looked almost like a church steeple or something like that. What that was was a drying tower for fabric hoses. You had to hang them up to dry them out or they would, you know, mildew and every kind of nasty thing would happen to them if you didn't do that. Fire hose is really uncooperative. I mean, early fire hoses, just they just didn't work that well. It wasn't until, until about 1820, long after they wow. invented the pumpers, that they got pretty good fire hose. And if it was leather, it would dry out, crack it, or rub that, you know, that glop onto it all the time. Romy, they've it. actually got a piece of fire hose down there about a foot long, and it is riveted leather. Yeah. And the rivets are, I don't know, maybe a half inch apart. But it's just a sheet of leather rounded into a hose shape, and the seam is pop riveted the whole way down. Yeah, they, they had to do it. And then, you know, that, it's, a t- it's one of those things you don't think about in modern times, but it was a tough nut to crack, the idea of something that was flexible enough to be a good play hose, a good discharge hose for fighting a fire, but at the same time was really, truly watertight. 
that's you know we're just used to having it but it but that was something that took a lot of experimentation and trial and error and all of that stuff and it was like i said long after the the uh, hand pumpers were had gotten really sophisticated was when they got the first you know reasonably effective fire hose well as i say there's a story behind every piece of equipment um what what was the that there were two trucks in there in particular that just as an engineering piece of art just took literally took my breath away sure um but i cannot remember the name it was two names well there was an yeah the aaron's fox That's I, it. I saw you That's were very yes. impressed with that that had that was a, a one of the beautiful oh. highly respected american fire trucks and they had most of them had this sort of characteristic chrome ball up front it was an air chamber that would make the discharge have a certain uh, uniformity and the, that pump is up front and so as a result they were real popular in areas that had waterfronts river fronts lake fronts even in, they would if they absolutely had to even run a, a ocean water, seawater through it. They didn't like to do that. Yeah, the, but not. the salt was pretty hard on the on the pump. But if they had to, they would. And then you get the youngest guy in the company to clean it for hours when you get it back <laughs> to the, the the fire station. They're really rolling uh, pieces of art. They that really ha- are. that happen and to be fire trucks. Exactly, yes. and you especially see that with the old stuff, the nineteenth oh, century man. stuff. Uh, these guys didn't just want to get to a fire; they wanted to look good getting there. And <laughs> and it's especially true of American firefighters. The you. you see the stuff from Europe or from Asia that we have and we have some, you know, they're nice looking, handsome, well-made pieces, but they don't have that kind of theatrical flair that American firefighters loved. And like a lot of things in America, it came from competition. They were competing with the guys down the the station down the road or the next town over. If they had some big, beautiful, elegant piece of equipment, then these guys right away had to start raising money for an even bigger, even more beautiful piece of equipment. And you're walking through the display that takes you from the 1700s hand pumpers, hand-pulled carts that were fed by bucket brigades at 60 gallons a minute to these units that date to the early 1900s. And then roam you round the corner, and there's an actual truck. That was at nine eleven. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. N- New York fire truck. Yes. Rescue four. It's. Uh, it's. Yes. It's breathtaking. Tell. Tell the story of that actual truck. It's. It's breathtaking for sure. Then and rescue four um, is uh, from Queens and it's. Uh, it's had a remarkable journey as it after nine eleven after it was pulled from the wreckage they uh, they damaged or destroyed about one hundred and fifty fire trucks at nine eleven. And uh, for this truck to have come out and uh, and then made this journey around the country and, and end up ultimately in our museum is is remarkable. Sadly, none of the members of that company survived, um, and their names are inscribed on the truck. But uh, it's still uh, it's still a project that we're working on to get it back to its most original condition that it was in. Um, but it's huge. You're right. It's Rescue Four. There were five of them in each of the one in each borough in New York. And uh, this particular one uh, not only suffered the tragedy of 9-11, but just, uh, just months prior to that had a, uh, a fire called the Father's Day Fire. And at the, on the Father's Day Fire, they lost members as well. So uh, that, that year was very tragic for this company. And uh, you're right, it is breathtaking. And I have to tell you, um, uh, all the volunteers, I, uh, hats off to all of them again for the work that they do on this truck 
to try and get it back to its original condition. We, uh, a fleet of folks, went back to New York just to get the original doors to bring back because uh, at different times the doors had been swapped out and things. So we're really cognizant of that. And of course, uh, not you know within just a few feet of that truck in the next gallery, uh, we also have the truck uh, 7A from the Granite Mountain Hotshots, which is their the buggy that they use. Yeah. So there's you know as as you said, we date from 1725 all the way to 2004, but those two pieces um, have a tremendous significance to us, and we tr- and we take care of them in the most respectful manner. Yeah, you're kind of on a hallowed ground there. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You really are. Again, the website for the museum? Oh, our website is halloflame.org, not .com, .org, halloflame.org. And just within the last uh, few weeks, we have a brand new web page that will allow you to surf through and actually look at each of the pieces that we have in categories and year breakdowns. There's videos on there. There's um, lots of interaction, so you'll enjoy the website. Well, when we get back, let's uh, give you an opportunity to make sure you give your best invite to all the Arizona homeowners to get down and check it out. And firefighters. We w- we really want firefighters to see this place. Very There's good. M- many that need to. Okay. The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. One of the most recognizable landscape features of the Phoenix area is Camelback Mountain. Standing at 2,700 feet above elevation at the peak doesn't even break the top 150 lists of Arizona's tallest mountains. But yet more people are rescued off of Camelback Mountain than any other mountain (laughs) (laughs) in Arizona. (laughs) One of the main reasons for that is it's a park, not a preserve. So you're not required to stay on the trails. It's just suggested. And the majority of those people rescued were not on the trail. Hmm. And mostly from out of town, too. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got an interesting text question here from somebody listening to the program. This one's actually for you, Mr. Montgomery. Yes. It says, how do I volunteer at the Hall of Flame Museum? I was in service in upstate New York for 23 years, and I want to be a part of it. Oh, I love I love questions like that because, yes, we're constantly accepting new volunteers, and, and uh, it's quite easy to do. We have, uh, we have regularly scheduled meetings, and all of that information is on our website, halloflame.org. So we would welcome that participation. Now, I just got to know, when the volunteers are there, and it's a late Friday night, and they've got the jump trampolines. <laughs> Haven't seen it yet. They no, seen it yet. They, no one's practiced. You know, the only guy I ever met that I know of, at least, that it was on one of my tours. He had been a firefighter in this little town in Colorado, and he said he said it was these just these dirt poor miners, and they had these pressed sawdust houses, and if it caught on fire, you weren't putting Kaboom. it out. Boom. Yeah, he said our motto was we never saved a house, but we never lost a yard. That was, <laughs> but he actually volunteered when he was seven. He was in his eighties when I talked to him. He when he was seventeen years old, they had one of those life nets like you see in the movies, and he jumped off the roof of one of these little houses probably, and he got hurt. It tore open his leg. He was in his 80s. He said he still had the scars. So oh, man. It didn't work well for the only person I know who ever used one of those things. Well, you know, you've got you've to think twice, but when you've, mm-hmm. got, when you've got a house on fire immediately behind you, an open door in front of you, yeah. and that life net below you, yeah. it, the decision – I have to believe it's pretty easy. Yeah, it makes itself. Pretty yes. motivating, yes. What, it is. what temperature are you 
experiencing in that mm-hmm. kind of environment? Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, most fires um, at the floor level are in the hundreds of degrees. And of course, as you get close to the ceiling, it's in the thousands. So, so 1200 degrees at the ceiling is a, is a pretty standard. So if you're standing up in a fire, then your head and chest area are being subjected to uh, six and five and six hundred degrees, and you know that life net looks pretty inviting. Yeah, it does. And I, you know, it's funny you mention it. Um, I was uh, a friend of mine's an LA City firefighter, and so they've gone from the life nets to more like an inflatable bag that quickly inflates with a high pressure bottle, and uh, they still practice that from their drill tower. So they they set it up quickly. You've probably seen it used on rescues where people are considering jumping off the freeway bridges or something like that. So they had each of these, uh, in this class I went and watched graduate, they had each wow. of them jump and dive into the bag. Well, you've got over 100 pieces of some of the most incredible firefighting equipment assembled anywhere. Do your best and get get a, get a big invite out there for all of our listeners. I will absolutely do that. We... Um, we certainly uh, do our best to honor the fire service and and its and the legacy. Of course, uh, you know going back, it's not only and I really have to emphasize it's not only about the fire service. This is about American history. I mean, when Amen. You, when you come in and you learn about the fire department's transition through these centuries, you're really learning about American history because uh, the fire service in many communities was the first organized body that everything else built on, right? So, you know, the the formation of city councils and, and, uh, and leadership of small towns and villages and cities kind of revolved around this need to make sure fires could be put out. And, um, so it's, it's a lesson. And and I hope all of our uh, Arizona school children get to come through the museum. I hope all of our retired firefighters that are in our community hope to volunteer there. And I really would love to see all Valley firefighters. If you haven't been down, please come and visit us. You'll be impressed. Now, they had a fire engine named after the Arizona pitcher, Randy, uh, the big unit. Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson. Yeah. Randy Johnson. Is, is that fire engine still around or have y'all got that in the museum yet? Uh, that was actually, it's not in the museum. It was, uh, that was uh, one that was used by the Phoenix Fire Department. And uh, I, I think it's since retired. I, I can't speak for it exactly. It may be in reserve status right now, but uh, uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was quite the, quite the fire engine, quite the ladder truck. And, and we have a lot of those in the valley. That's really what it breaks down to. And you can know that all of our fire engines go on first aid calls as well as and paramedic runs as well as fires. So, Well, Chuck and Mark, I can't thank you all enough for stealing time out of your weekend to come down and share Thanks. the story of the museum with us. No, we enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the invitation. We did too. Halloflame.org. Halloflame.org. Open today at 9 o'clock. Dad, you may just have to do the last two hours of the broadcast by yourself. Okay. (laughs) 